0: Okay. As-salamu alaykum. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome everybody to day four of Surah Baqarah. It's so exciting um, that we are about to journey into the ethical message of um, Surah Baqarah after finishing the historical context. Um, Porsche has been buried under the weight of like all the mountains that they talk about in the Quran so in (laughs) preparation and as we we continue here just thrilled and excited and um, and just so grateful. Um, I, you know, I the people here know that I've been working hard to finish uh, the Asuli taxes, which is a major um, monumental achievement. It's like you know, um, no fun doing your personal taxes, but having to do your uh, nonprofit taxes is, is sort of less fun in some ways. But it's also very interesting because it gives you a, a moment in time to look back at the progress that you've made. And it's a wonderfully insightful journey, but it got me thinking about um, you know the progress that we've made since we, we got here. And so I wanted to share a couple of things that I thought were very interesting. I was curious to go back, if you have an Instagram page, um, Ramin, our social media person, is amazing in documenting, um, pictorially, just the change. And so I was really... Um, I just went back to look like, you know, from the time we arrived here in Ohio and seeing pictures of these boxes of books um, and an empty space and how that's changed over time um, and transformed into what looks like an amazing library and it's still a work in progress, but you know, it's an incredible, just visual journey. Um, And I can't believe that that was just back in January because I can't even believe that we're here in October already about to, you know, enter the last couple of months of the year. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a really fascinating thing to look back and say, well, how much progress have you made, not just in terms of a physical plant or, um, you know, moving or anything like that, but much more importantly in your spiritual journey and in your understanding of the Quran. And what I wanted to share was a couple of um, messages that um, I think encapsulate so much of um, what I'm talking about that I think um, you'll see is very, very special. So I got this message from, from someone um, late last night, um, I believe. Um, or very early this morning, uh, it says, Salam, I can't thank you and the Shaykh enough for your Project um, Illum Tafsir videos. I'm a lifelong Muslim who is understanding the beauty and depth of Islam and the Quran for the first time. My mind is blown and my life is transformed. My question is about our relationship to money. In Surah Room, the Shaykh said that the main goal of money is to purify you and bring you closer to God. So we should ask ourselves, how can I use my money to bring me closer to God? My question is, how do we balance this achievement while also consuming and enjoying material things of this world? After hearing the tafsir of Rum, I'm having trouble justifying to myself spending money on mundane things like replacing a ceiling fan, even though I have a desire to beautify my home. How do I find balance? Um, thank you again, may Allah bless you for your efforts and guide everyone to the truth. So it's a fascinating, I mean, it's a wonderful question. I mean, I think it's exciting because of course, you know, to get, I get a lot of messages that say, I'm understanding the Quran for the very first time and my life is transformed. And I can't tell you like how much that means to hear that. But even to, I mean, this is exactly what we hope will happen when you start thinking about things like, should I buy a ceiling fan? And you know, hopefully she can maybe answer that in the Q and A. But, um, you know, when I, when I talk about progress, I think what I have really noticed, and I've talked about this before, but um, this engagement with the Quran is here has been so transformative that it has really changed our, our vocabulary. And we here have encapsulated a world of meaning into just the name of a surah. So just to give you an example, you know, we, when we say, oh, okay, Hadid, we all know that means that the Qur'an is calling you to be strong and flexible like iron, not um, like strong like a rock where you crumble under pressure. Or if you say, oh, Abisa, Surah Abisa, we all here know, okay, that means you can't just be good, you have to be beautifully good. Or if we say, kasas, we like kind of say, oh, that's their kasas, that's the story they tell them, that's their narrative, you know, it's like how you justify to yourself your behavior that may or may not be um, moral. Um, Or, Dariyat, we use that a lot here because we have different things that we're doing and different people that play different roles and Surah Dariyat was about how every single person has a unique role to play and that they all need to come together. So when we're talking about like, oh, well maybe I'm not good at this, maybe I'm good at that, we all kind of chime in, Dariyat, and we all know what that means. Um, Zukruf is one of our favorites. It's like glitter. It's like when we say, Oh, you know, that's just Zucruf, like you're just giving into your, you know, desire to have beautiful shoes or, you know, get the right car or a house or whatever it is. So Zucqruf has a world of meaning. And now we can add to that sort of room, which is like, okay, how do I spend my money to get closer to God? And I think that this is exactly what we're talking about when we talk about the transformative nature of the Quran. Like I could never have imagined that I could just immediately pull a word and everyone understands like this is the meaning of the Quran. This is the moral message that we're trying to, to learn here. Um, so it is really incredible that Muslims now through this tafsir, if they find it, have a way to relate to the Quran, have that world of meaning be part of them. And so this was really beautiful. This message um, about Surah Room, I was so happy to receive it. Um, as I always am, I always say, you know, thank you. We really don't know how people are receiving this unless um, unless people tell us. So I just very quickly, like not even an hour ago, wrote back to her and just she said, thank you so much for your message. It means so much. It's so inspirational for us to know that this is transformative and I would love to know more about you. So she immediately wrote back and I, so like as I'm getting dressed for the hook, <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, I can't resist reading this and it brought me to tears. So I thought I would share it with you. So. Um, okay so she was she was like thank you for writing back to me um she says as for me my family is from egypt i was born there but raised in california i love the Sheikh's egyptian sense of humor i'm a lawyer and have always done public interest work poverty law and then disability rights because i've always felt a pull towards justice i don't know why i've always felt compelled for some reason to fight for the most vulnerable as you can imagine in egyptian culture my community would ask things like um when, I was going, when was I going to get real, like get a real job and stop my activism thing? My dad was, I think, disappointed for a long time that I wasn't a corporate lawyer, although now he says he is proud. But I never cared what people said because justice is what drove me. Money was an afterthought. The sad thing is I never connected the drive to fight injustice to Islam or understood that justice is so core to Islam. But perhaps God knew that eventually I would find my way to Asuli and your videos and would make the connection, so he guided me accordingly. Who knows, but I'm so grateful to be here now. As for my faith journey, I've always been Muslim and believed in God, but had something like a reversion in my mid-20s when I finally became conscious of God and actually incorporated Islam into my life and my choices. I lived un-Islamically for a long time, but I remember even then silently praying to God to guide me back to him, to help me live the right way, and to not lose hope in me. Alhamdulillah, after being in a car accident, a light bulb went off, and I knew I had to change my life. I'm not a convert, but I felt like I was finally awake, and things were finally clear for the first time in my life. I started praying. I volunteered at the masjid, a good one with a great community, and married my husband, who was also a volunteer. After having kids, I stopped going to the masjid, got busy with work, stopped praying, and as you can imagine, everything went downhill from there. Depression, burnout, all of it. After finding enlightenment, I felt lost again. But then I found Asuli. My husband has always been a fan of the Sheikh and met him once. He has a signed copy of Search for Beauty, which is so cool. I saw him watching the Project Illumin videos, although I didn't know it at the time, but never bothered to listen. Um, But I guess he watched enough times that I eventually became curious and sat down to watch the last part of Surah Hadid. I was immediately hooked. Since then, I watch videos um, every chance I get. It has completely transformed how I understand Islam and I feel connected to the Quran for the first time ever. I talk about different surahs that I love like Sajda and Anam. I never could have spoken like that before. I had no idea what I was missing. It's amazing how much depth, meaning, and lessons the sheikh can pull from just one ayah. It's mind-blowing. I've told everyone who will listen about Usuli, and I will continue to do so inshallah. There's no way to thank you and the sheikh for what you do and how you've impacted my life. I'm so grateful to have received this illumination. Life makes more sense and my greatest hope is that I can pass on this knowledge to my little students, my six-year-old and my four-year-old i'm sure you didn't sign up to read my life story so i'll stop there thank you again so much you and the sheikh will be in my dua. okay if you don't cry from that message <laughs> um, you need to see what happened to your heart thank you so much um this is exactly why we pour everything into this message into this effort into what we do here and and a message like this will just you know send us over the moon and keep us on a high for the next year so mm-hmm. thank you so much i hope other people like you know that resonated with you um that this is really what it means um definitely to all of us so thank you shaykh and um thank you all for joining and being part of this this journey um and i'm so excited to to hear um more of surah Baqarah
1: today. سبحان الله العلي العظيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على محمد خاتم الانبياء المرسل للعالمين وعلى was واصحابه وعلى من اتبعه باحسان الى يوم الدين what I mean by that specifically is that Surat al-Waqarah has a, a among its purposes and among its, its, its objectives is that it situates Islam in very express terms vis-a-vis prior revelations and in particular vis-a-vis the idea of um, a chosen people and the idea of uh, God's chosen people. And as we said that there is a methodical dealing engagement with various um, various um, incidents narrated by the Bible but in the, Islam, in the the Quran, constantly comes in, and it the message repeatedly, time and again, is that people are privileged by God by being the recipients of a trust. Uh, that's a privilege, but at the same time that it's a privilege, it's a burden. And whether this turns into a blessing or a curse depends on what they do with the trust. And the although a good part of the narrative is Challenging claims of the Israelites that um, they have an entitlement as some, somehow sort of like, like the 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 golden standard. The the message is quite clear to Muslims that in the same way that the Israelites have been blessed and challenged by the trust given to them by God and the various ways that they either upheld the trust or failed the trust the implication is clear to Muslims and we talked at length about especially the. The Quran, time and again, shows that it is keenly familiar with what the Bible says, but is consistently an amendment to the Bible or a corrective to the Bible. And it comes to a lot of narratives in the Bible that are full, that are... um, intimately interconnected with a considerable amount of mythology and it strips away the mythology and simply gets to immoral point. And as we saw, for instance, with the narrative about um, Sulaiman, والسلام, uh, which in, 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 in the outlook about Sulaiman and the outlook about Suleiman in the Bible and the outlook about Suleiman in the Quran are very different um, very different identities okay and we walked through the engagement with the Israelites until we get to the point where the this full circle where Surah al-Baqarah begins at the uh, uh, towards the the beginning of the Surah by uh, talking to the Israelites directly and saying to the Israelites remember when God gave you the covenant and leaves open the door that if they do good then God reciprocates and if they do bad, well, that's their choice. And as we saw, we go full circle because that same narrative is repeated twice at the beginning and towards the end of the engagement with the Israelites in Surat al-Baqarah. And the, the crux of the matter that we get to is when God talking to Ibrahim, Says that the unjust um, cannot bear a covenant from God, and that that is really the bottom line. The bottom line is you, you, you know, it is not the technicalities of the law, it is not um, some status, it is not some rhetoric, it is not some sli- sloganeering, it is quintessentially the moral quality of justice that either puts you in a position where you can justifiably say that I am carrying the trust, the divine trust, or where it disqualifies you altogether from being the bearer of the trust. And more or less, this is where we stopped. But before walking through, because Surah al-Baqarah covers so many specific details, that it is very easily to, easy to get lost in, in the details and to lose sight of what Surat al-Baqarah accomplishes. So before I actually go through many of these details, I want to first project forwards and get an overview of what Surah Al-Baqarah achieves. Normally I reserve that till the very end, but because of the length of Surah Al-Baqarah and because of the risk that as we are going through the details that one would lose sight for what is the point of all these details. I think it is useful to get a bit of an overview, thematic overview of Surah Al Baqarah. And I've written out an outline that might, that, um, so I'm going to, on my computer, so it might be helpful for me to just uh, refer to it in the interest of time. Okay. So, Surah Al Baqarah, it is. If you want a thematic essence about what Surah Al Baqarah does, perhaps more than any other Surah in the Quran, it is a Surah that situates the role it's systematic engagement about the role of positive legal commandments in light of the larger and more foundational moral imperatives of the message so first it is the first surah where you can where you get actual Quranic legislation but at the same time all the Quranic legislation in Surah al-Baqarah as we will see is consistently packaged in immoral message. And if one is not paying attention or if one just takes certain ayat out of context, you very quickly lose touch with the entire momentum of Surat al-Baqarah. So It starts out by going right to the issue of conscience. The issue of domir, what is inside. And the fact that you cannot avoid the um, the pragmatic reality that human beings are a complex phenomena وَمِنَّ النَّاسِ مَنْ يَقُولُ بِاللَّهِ وَبِالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ وَمَا هُمْ there are, going to, there are people in existence all around you that will claim to be what they're not they will claim to believe but they're actually not believers. Any law is situated in this reality. A law that ignores the realities of life is a law that very quickly can become a vehicle for injustice. And the realities are, is that there are at the same time that we don't know what is in the hearts of people. And with the proviso, of course, that as you إلا إلا يشعرون, that human beings that pretend to be what they're not, in fact, only fool themselves. In other words, in our language, they the only betray themselves. The, the self-betrayal is is a reality but unfortunately human beings do that uh, all the time and the 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 Quranic identification that that is maradun, that this is marad this is an illness in the heart it's a disease being two-faced hypocritical um, it Thoroughly inconsistent with the self is an illness. And the reality is is that you are surrounded in life, or life surrounds us with, with people who cause considerable corruption on earth, and but rarely will these people actually admit that they're corrupting Earth nahnu that when you when they're told don't no corrupt, they say no we, we don't cause corruption, we we do gooders, we do good. So that's part of the reality that confronts you in existence and confronts you of life. Okay. But not only that but part of the reality whether confronting Muslims at the time of the Prophet or forever indefinitely is there also people who يشتروا بآيات الله ثمنا قليلا ولا تكون أول كافر به ولا تشتروا بآيات ثمنا قليلا those who a, a, how do I put it, the, those who um, uh, exploit God's words um, for profit, for position, for prestige, uh, it, it's not just there are those who corrupt, and really those who corrupt will say we in fact do corrupt, but also, the another problem is that life is full of people that use religion, leverage religion, for entirely selfish reasons, and egotistical reasons, and self-promotional reasons. And that... Uh, You know, piety, in the same way that you have the hypocrites, but you also have those who use piety for entirely self-promotional reasons that have nothing to do with worshiping God or or so on. But not only that, but life is full of pharaohs. وَإِنَّ جَعِينَكُم مِنْ آلِ فِرْعَوْنَ Right? Life is full of pharaohs, of despots and dictators who commit the worst type of atrocities against human beings. And will find As Surat al baqarah would even remind us more explicitly later on, we'll find simply through the power of their personality, followers and those who will be impressed by them because they're impressed by the authoritarian personality. They're impressed by the dogma of authoritarianism. And those who will... um, People who themselves suffer from weak personalities, weak senses of self, and so when they fall under the, the saw of someone with a, uh, a, a pharaonic personality, they submit and they're misled. And at the same time, as Surah Al-Baqarah reminds us, there are the Moseses of the world, those who stand up against the despots and attempt to resist the despots. And the Moses of the, of the world, as Surah Al-Baqarah reminds us in the way it tells us the story of Moses, and again, underscoring quite differently from the way the Bible positions that story, On the one hand, Moses is a very brave and gallant uh, reformer and lawgiver. But uh, on the other hand, the practical difficulties of dealing with the weaknesses in human character is a commentary on the type of challenges that these reformers confront when dealing with injustice. So, although Moses, Musa, wasalam, is solid, the followers of Musa, the audience of Musa, in other words, the audience that the reformer often talks to, um, are often wishy-washy, and often are tempted by comfort, and tempted by their own addiction to authoritarianism, their own addiction to a lifestyle where they're told what to do, what to eat, what to drink, when to get up, when to go to bed. And they're tempted by their own egoism and they're tempted by the arisal of false prophets between them. That's just part of of what the the universe, that Surat al-Baqarah, situates you in. And the details of... What Surah Al Baqarah tells us about the interaction between the Israelites, and if you look at the, the specifics of how Surah Al Baqarah tells you about the interactions between the Israelites and Musa, a. and notice in Surah Al Baqarah there is no mention of Harun, Musa's brother, and in Surah Al Baqarah the, the, there is n- nothing made about. Uh, the showdown between Musa and the pharaoh and the magic and so on. That's not the issue at all in Surah Al-Baqarah. In Surah Al-Baqarah, the issue is that they are tempted by, a false, by, by false charisma, they, they, when they worship the, the golden calf. And then they are they, they're, they're, they're tempted by their old lives and material comfort. And then they grow tired of the struggle and say, what is, you know, what is this? We're we're in the desert, we're eating the same thing day in and day out. You know, where is the variety? Where is the change? They they start becoming restless. And and then they are tempted by, or they are uh, mishandle the law that even when the law comes to, teach them something about virtue, they completely miss the point. They completely ignore the moral point of the law and get caught up in the technicalities, which as we will see becomes extremely important. And okay, and then, but Surah al baqarah as I mentioned last time, and I want to underscore this because it's not in the tafasir. Is that when it comes and it tells you about how the, your the, the people that purport to follow you, you look at them and you find that their hearts have become as hard as stone. But at the same time, it reminds you that don't forget that even with hearts of stone, still much good can come through these hearts. That even with hearts of stone, waters, the, 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 through the fissures and cracks in these rocks, water can flow through. And then it comes and it warns, People on the past by saying, "Well, remember that," yeah. and then exposes the the uh, the audience of Surah Al-Baqarah to a, another central theme, and that. Is that people love exclusionary claims? People love to pretend that they have exclusionary access to God's mercy, exclusionary access to God's knowledge, exclusionary access to God's justice. That's again part of the challenge. because people often don't have the moral subtlety and the intellectual subtlety to differentiate between the exclusionary claims and trust in what they know to be the truth. In other words that they often people are tempted to say well unless we claim that we alone are saved then that must mean that we're accepting moral relativism and because we don't want to accept moral relativism then we that becomes the rejection of moral relativism becomes easily mistaken for the demand or the necessity of, say, only us are saved, only us are close to God, and if al-Baqarah does anything, is that tells you, no, there, there is right and wrong, there is truth and wrong, but that is a huge difference between that and between the type of arrogance required to claim that you are chosen or that you have an ex- exclusionary access or exclusive access to God's uh, mercy or God's compassion or God's justice. Okay. And then at the same time comes and warns Muslims and, and the audience of the Quran generally that belief although in the same way that it said that you know only they, they say only Jews will or will go to will be saved only Christians will be saved and rebuts that claim at the same time just a few verses later on it says well but Just a few uh, ayat later, it comes and says, but keep in mind, saying that no one exclusively possesses God's mercy, no one exclusively possesses God's grace, doesn't mean that your attitude becomes all inclusive in terms of your moral stances vis-a-vis the other and so the warning is Jews and Christians what they want from you is to abandon your own path and to follow theirs and in fact they will never be happy with you unless you abandon your your own path meaning what meaning believe in your own past as the objective absolute truth the distinction between saying i ex- i have exclusive access to god's mercy and the 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 falsity in this claim has nothing to do with moral relativism so it is imperative that you investigate the truth of what God wants from you, and that you stand on firm grounds, and that you are not tempted to dilute who you are or your identity in order to appease the other, or to be artificially inclusive of the other that has that's a completely separate matter okay and then surah al-baqarah also takes you and i and i i, I actually uh, f- f- forgot this um, so we just take a, take a step back that when Allah t- takes you to the original trust the original delegation that when Allah tells the angels I will make a deputy or a viceroy on earth and the angels respond with a very rational, logical, compelling objection. Why are you creating a deputy that can, in fact, exercise the wrong choice and cause an enormous amount of corruption on earth? And as we talked about, Allah comes and and the message is to us. The message, obviously, is not to the angels. The angels don't need a message to, to find guidance. So when Allah says to, that Allah taught Adam the names and then had the angels prostrate before Adam and then told the angels, see, I know what you don't know. It is very important to remember that this message, this lesson, is for us. And as we said, that it is conceptual thinking that names... Is symbolic construct for conceptual thinking, and conceptual thinking is necessary for the ability to exercise of choice. And Surah Al-Baqarah duly tells us that well, Adam and Eve exercised their choice, and they exercised it wrongfully, but they were forgiven. And as I told you, I think from the moment of creation, you know, this entire story could be a symbolic construct. I mean, a lot of Muslims, um, the the idea of not, uh, and I'm not saying that, I feel or that I believe that it is in fact a symbolic construct, but I entertain the possibility that it is a symbolic construct. Whether in fact there was an Adam or Eve or it is entirely a metaphor to teach us a moral lesson is irrelevant as far as I'm concerned because the moral lesson remains the same. And what I learned from Surat baqarah is to go to the moral lesson and to skip over the minutia, because the minutia is irrelevant. And the minutiae that I, you and I can never have access to is whether in fact Adam and Eve actually existed as the first human beings on earth or not. It's irrelevant. What is relevant is the narrative itself. And the narrative is that they sinned by using their conceptual thinking, they sinned. And they were forgiven. And we, all of us, stand in the feet of Adam and Eve. All of us exercise our conceptual thinking, and all of us sin and all of us, if we will, are smart, will repent and ask for God's forgiveness. Yet our conceptual thinking is such a blessing that conceptually we're told, we think of angels as something amazing and great and, and, and larger than life. But that intellect, whatever the intellect is, But that intellect was so important that such a marvel of creation that Allah deemed it fit to have it honored by having the universe or angels prostrate before that intellect. But that same intellect that is such a, a, that deserved such an honor is the same vehicle that was the cause of error. But it is also the same vehicle that can draw God's forgiveness and God's grace. So it is your elevation and your honor and your dignity. And it's also your ultimate deprecation and your humiliation and your absolute fall. It is simultaneously, it is the same, it is both at the same time. And it all depends on you. As it all depended on Adam and Eve and what you do with it. And another thing we notice as as we'll when we go through the the, the more detailed review. Allah often reminds us that Musa salam, was, sent revela- furkan, that Muhammad, salam, was sent the book and the furqan. And that Muhammad was sent the book and the furqan. And the furqan is the, there's a huge debate in Islamic theology about what the furqan is. But the furqan in essence is what differentiates, what has the ability to differentiate between falsehood and truth, between what is beautiful and what is ugly, what is right and what is wrong. And we notice in Surah al Baqarah also that Allah doesn't just says I've sent with the book, the Furqan, but I sent with the book, Al-Hikmah, Wisdom. All of that harkens back to the very instrument. It is not that God gave Adam the revelation and then had the angels prostrate because Adam w- was the barrier of, or Uh, bore the revelation. Even before the revelation was the intellect. And the prostration, the honoring, was because of an asma that Allah taught Adam through the intellect. Okay. And then Surat al-Baqarah takes us from this point where Adam is bearing that trust to another image of another trust and another critical moment in the life of, of the moral message of Islam. And if you think of the hypocrites, you think of those who uh, uh, trade in religion, you think of uh, those who are uh, um, uh, hard-headed, pedantic um, uh, people who completely... uh, miss the point of divine law. You think of all the things that go wrong and then Allah presents you with this with this with, uh, remarkable image of the promise of a new beginning. Ibrahim And that is the story of, which we haven't talked about yet, the, the story of Ibrahim, a.s. was Ismail, Building the house, and as they're building the house, so we you, you, you have Adam, Musa, and then Ibrahim. And as they're building the house, رَبَّنَا مِنَّا إِنَّكَ أَنْتَ السَّمِيعُ الْعَلِيمُ. The supplication here this is a symbol of our acceptance of the covenant and Allah accept from us. رَبَّنَا وَجْعَنَّا مُسْلِمَيْنِ لَكَ وَمِن ذُرِّيَّتِنَا that أُمَّةً uh, muslima that Allah accept from us Accept us as those who surrender to you, turn to you, anchor themselves in you. And the nation that comes after us in that path, the, and, and that show us our past, show us our law. A, it's it's a in the midst of that unless you are missing the entire point. Why didn't Surat al-Baqarah start with Ibrahim and Ismail? Why did Surah al-Baqarah tell you first about the hypocrites and those who uh, uh, corrupt religion and cor- those who cause corruption on earth and, and about Moses and about the, all the problems with the Israelites and about Adam and then gets to Ibrahim and Ismail? It takes, harkens you back to the original promise. It's like saying to those Muslims, okay, here's an, I am reminding you of the new chapter being opened with you Muslims as the bearers of the trust. And, as we said, the Quranic narrative, while in the Bible, there is a vague, what what remained in the Bible, is a very vague reference to the son of Ibrahim Ismail from his mother Hagar and the well of Zamzam, But... The Quran comes and anchors the the goes back to the Genesis and says, remember this is the original point where both the trust that ultimately the Israelites carried and faltered with started and Ibrahim, your father Ibrahim, and the trust that now you." are being charged with carrying. Then we notice that also Surah Al-Baqarah presents us with a rather very powerful image when Allah talks to the Prophet, and sallallahu alayhi wa and says, that here the Prophet, or uh, the Quran, this is uh, around 144, that Allah is telling the Prophet, we see that you keep turning, gazing left and right in the in the in the heavens, in the skies. And searching for a direction. The language of 144 puts you, creates an image of the prophet as if in uh, how do I put it? In a, in a state of a state that that all of us experience, a point where you ache to turn your face, to turn your being towards God, but you don't know precisely how or where. And we'll talk about this. In, in, in more when we get to this area because there's there's um things that I need to, to correct about popular Muslim belief about the qibla and so on but that image of of even a prophet saying God which direction how do I turn towards you? And then Surat al-Baqarah coming and reminding us that although there is a law and Allah will give us the law, but that wherever you turn, you will find Allah. And in the midst of that, coming and saying, and remember that, and before I tell you all about all types of laws, Remember that Allah is closer to you than anything. Again, if you're paying attention, you realize what Surah Al Baqarah is saying to you. Law, without being anchored in nearness to Allah, without, it makes you like the folks that Surat al-Baqarah told you about at the very beginning, like those hypocrites, like those who uh, end up using revelation to serve their own ego. Law, without being anchored in the moral purpose of the law, won't put you on a track like the Israelites where the promise of Ibrahim and Ismail as they put the cornerstone will go nowhere. Okay. Then, shortly after that, and here I'm just wrapping, I'm summarizing the entire Surah Al-Baqarah before we go and take it in, in detail. Shortly after that, then Surat al-Baqarah starts giving you positive laws. And the positive laws that come are about pilgrimage, details, rules about pilgrimage and prayer and consumption of meat and gambling and uh, consumption of alcohol, and um, uh, 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 criminal punishments, and writing down debts and contracts, and divorce, uh, and the details, specific detailed laws about divorce. All of these are laws. Now, again, specific, detailed laws. But unless you are fracturing Surat al-Baqarah, if you're paying attention, you must understand that how the Quran laid the foundation for you before the first revelation about the positive laws. First, it told you the story of the heifer. First, it told you about hypocrites. First, it told you about e- egoism and self-promoters. First, it told you about the, the responsibility of the intellect and moral conscience. First, it told you about the, the, the promise of Ibrahim and his son Ismail. And it told you about justice. And it told you that there are no chosen people and no entitlement. After all of this, then you get the positive commandments, the first actual positive legal commandments for the Muslim ummah. And as I said, pilgrimage, prayer, um, uh, um, criminal laws, uh, debts, uh, divorce, inheritance, warfare but as we will notice it becomes rather typical of quranic style whenever the quran in medina start giving starts giving you a bunch of legal commandments Allah intentionally comes in the midst of legal, his legal commandments and grabs you, like lifts you up, and takes you away from planet Earth, and exposes you to a supernal reality, away from the technicalities of planet Earth. So in the midst of, and I'll show you repeatedly how the, the Quran of Medina does this, but in the midst of these technical technical, legal commandments, Allah comes and says, Ayatul kursi I'm waking up. Allah Oh, Allahua illaha illahu al hayukaium la ta khusinatu walla the the that magnanimous relate revelation about surah Ko Kursi that comes and reminds you as you th- the, the way you can actually fulfill, the way you can give effect to the morality of these laws, and I'll show you, for instance, how the laws about kasas, the laws about inheritance, the laws about debts, the laws about uh, divorce, they're technical laws, but without a moral objective, the law is pointless. And I'll show you how. But... For now it's just important to be cognizant of the fact that the the it's like put it this way it's like Allah never talks to you about laws without giving you a spiritual interlude it's like saying i don't want your brain to become i don't want your more your conscious to become that conscious of a technician so I'm going to grab you out of the technicalities and takes you into a stark reminder of what it's all about. And what it's all about is that the, these laws serve a purpose, but don't forget that these laws can never become a means of corrupting the reality. The Allahu la illa qayyum, that Allah is the sustainer of the heavens, of the earth, and so on. And then the revelation takes you to something if only Muslims understood in context, is that right as it talked about all these laws, and a lot of these laws have to do with disempowerment, as we'll see. Laws of divorce and inheritance and punishment, as well I'll show you, they have to do with disempowerment after, right after ayatul kursi. لا في الدين من There's no compulsion in religion. and this amazing, remarkable revelation about the truth of what the revelation is, taking people out of darkness to light. But that objective cannot be achieved through compulsion. So if you don't understand the ways that laws overcome this disempowerment, then you're missing the entire point. So some people come to the laws of divorce and say, well look, the Quran says oh you know a woman is entitled for, to financial support uh, during the time that she uh, is uh, um, breastfeeding a child for two years you're missing the entire point. The entire point was relative to the circumstances that, want, that constituted empowering, empowering the disempowered. But all laws are, if you will, a metaphor. It's all laws, if you will, are immoral example. The law is never the law for its own objective. The law is a law to educate you as to an arc. What the law wanted to achieve and what the law could achieve further. And you better understand the moral arc. If you are to fulfill the promise of Ibrahim salam and Ismail alayhi salam and to bear the trust and the covenant and not end up like the Israelites. Of course we ended up worse than the Israelites but that's beside the point. Okay. And right after Allah then takes you to this point about no compulsion in religion. And you say, God, you know, whoa, this is really, this is hard work. You know, law and immoral objective and a trust and all of that. And Allah then at this point introduces you to a an interlude if you will in which you see the Prophet Ibrahim himself tell Allah seek assurance the Prophet Ibrahim himself tell Allah Allah show me how you can resurrect the dead and Allah tells Ibrahim haven't you believed yes I, yes I believed but you know just so my heart can be, rest assured this is the again and and the the, the famous narrative that then Allah resurrects you know Ibrahim cuts a bird into four parts and puts it on different parts of the mountain and Allah resurrects the bird but if Ibrahim himself is comforted by Allah in his moment of insecurity and doubt. That's the message to you. There is no compulsion in religion. What is the medicine for doubt and insecurity? Understanding and comprehension. Not compulsion. In other words, in other words, the law is not what's going to give people faith. The law is not what's going to prevent people from being hypocrites. The law is not what's going to prevent people from being morally ill. That comes from something beyond the law and it is incumbent on you, and that is why, as we will see, although the Quran said these are the laws, when Muslims, at the time of the Prophet (inaudible) would fall into, have a problem with the application of law, they would go to the Prophet (inaudible) and say, here's the problem, and what is remarkable is how often the narratives tell us that the Allah, the Prophet, ASS1, takes the problem and then Allah provides a solution. In other words, the Prophet could have dealt with these people by saying, Go do what Allah, the law says and don't ask questions. But every time, Allah provides a solution in the same way that Allah responded to the Prophet Ibrahim when he had his doubts about resurrection. So the onus is on us as bearers of the trust that we come up with solutions. Not tell people, that's the way it is, shut up and do what you're told. That's not the path of the Lord. That's the path of the Pharaoh. Do you see? And then some of the most tender and gentle ever closings of the Quran. The very end of Surah Al-Baqarah comes and it's as if Allah is stroking your back and comforting you. And says Allah nafsan illa usaha. Allah doesn't put a burden on a human being more than they can bear. And that beautiful, tender prayer and supplication, Allah don't fault us if we fall in error. Allah don't put a burden upon us more than we can bear. It is that, that closing supplication, it's like saying, okay, do your best with the trust. As long as I know that you're doing your best, I'm with you. Don't, and if you feel overwhelmed, come to me and ask me or seek my, my, my help Resort to Allah. Of course, that's all premised on doing your best with the trust. But the message is also very clear that if you become like the hypocrites, if you become like the egotistical merchants of religion, when you start with or if you become people who lose the entire mob and become like what the Israelites did with the covenants, Allah's relationship to you will become like Allah's relationship to the Israelites. The door is open because allah even tells the israelites if you honor my covenant i will honor yours so the door is always open but if you lose the the your if if the relationship with god is alienated blame only yourselves that's a walk through the Entire Surah Al Baqarah. So it anchored Muslims on a solid foundation as they embarked upon the legacy in Medina. And what remains is for us to then go step by step and understand the details and the specifics, which of course is going to take us a little bit of time it is uh, important to underscore that because because the nuances of the surah were accessible to the early muslims the and they they understood the nature of the narrative itself. The Quran was the source of these monumental moral transformations in its audience. Otherwise, you find the Surah Al-Baqarah, which, for uh, you know, for the the for instance, Surah Al-Baqarah is said to by a lot of people believe that reciting Surah Al-Baqarah repels evil spirits, and that's sort of a, a traditional belief that was handed down traditionally uh culturally because of the verses about um sulaiman and um sorcery um but um but you you rarely find the treatment the, the type of systematic well, actually, not even rarely, but in the modern age, you, you never find the type of systematic treatment of what Surat al-Baqarah conveyed and the role it played. So before we go from the very beginning of Surat al-Baqarah and uh, go through the ayat that we need to go through to both understand the moral message and the various legal messages from Surah al-Baqarah. Um, let's see how we're doing in time and how much we'll get through tonight. But what I want to um, do, um, since I started out in the past few halakhas uh, on Surah al-Baqarah, showing showing you the contrast between the Qur'anic treatment and the Biblical treatment. Um, I want to finish doing that, um, this halakha, and then go from there. So, just so I can illustrate how the Quran is clearly referencing many of the same events that you find in the Bible but it references them, it addresses them in very diametrically different ways with a very different moral very different moral import um, to these messages. So if you turn to to aya 133 and this is when in surah al-baqarah Allah is talking about uh Yaqub alayhi Jacob the prophet Jacob is dying and uh, and the, what the prophet Jacob tells his sons at the point of death. am going to show to واحدا ونحن له مسلمون. So Jacob the Quran says you are not present but Allah was present when Jacob is talking to his children and Jacob wants to make sure that his children will continue upon the right path after him and he says to them what will you worship after me and they assure him that we will worship your God the one and only God, and the God of Abraham, the God of Ismail, the God of Ishaq, God of Isaac, and we are all, when we all surrender unto this God, so am kuntum shuhada it's a rhetorical question, were you present With the obvious answer that, well, no, you were not present, but Allah was present. Now, so why does the Qur'an ask the question in this way? And I'll illustrate the point. So, um, Jacob in the Bible is a very different character than he is in the Qur'an. So in Genesis 32, 22, this is the narrative where Jacob wrestles with God, Um, So, which of course is the Qur'an, is not in the Qur'an at all. So that night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with Jacob until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, when the man saw that he could not overpower Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak now. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked Jacob, What is your name? Jacob answered, Jacob. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name, but he, the man, replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. Then the man blessed Jacob there. So Jacob called the place Piniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Okay. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon atta- the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. So contrast the way laws are articulated in the Bible to what we will see how laws are articulated in the Surah Al-Baqarah. And you notice as the narrative goes, that Jacob takes his four wives and his eleven sons and he goes off and he meets a man and he starts wrestling with the man. The Bible doesn't tell us why he wrestles with the man. And he wrestles with the man all day. And... Um, they re- oh, sorry, rather, sorry. He wrestles with the man all night until daybreak, until Fezr. And then... He refuses to let go of the man unless the man blesses him. Now, most biblical commentators say that Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me, because Jacob realized that this man must be God. And it is indeed, as it turns out, that although this man is God, he asked Jacob, what is your name? And Jacob says, well, it's Jacob. And the man tells Jacob, well, from now on, you're not going to be known as Jacob, but you're going to be known as Israel. And you're going to be known as Israel, i.e. the Mighty One, meaning the Mighty One, because, or the Father of Nations, the dual meaning, because you wrestled with God and you overcame. So the character of Jacob in the Bible it has a, a a and and then God, unable to defeat Jacob, gives Jacob a handicap. He 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 hurts his hip socket bone, and that becomes the basis for the ritual law in um, rabbinic law that you don't eat the eat the meat of hip bone. Now, so this is the same Jacob now who in the Bible is, you you see at the moment of death, right? That the Quran talks about in Surah al baqarah So all these the Bible talks about all the, the twelve tribes of Israel meaning the twelve tribes of, of Jacob and he says all these are the twelve tribes of Israel and this is what their father said to them when he blessed them giving each the blessing appropriate to him or giving each the blessing appropriate to the, to, uh, the, the son in question then he gave them these instructions I am about to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron the Hittite, the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried, there Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried, and there I buried Lee. The field and the cave in it were bought from the Hettites. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his son, he drew his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Gathered to his people mean he died. Joseph, Yusuf, threw himself on his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father, Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days to do so, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned him for 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, if I I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, my father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die, bury me in the tomb. I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him. The dignitaries of his court, and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Atad near Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly, And there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why that place near Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. So Jacob's son did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Mashpela near Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. So this is the scene in the Bible. Contrast that was the scene in the Quran. The scene in the Quran, Ya'qub, Jacob, is worried about who his sons will worship after him. And they assure him that uh, we're gonna worship the, the, your God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Ismail. In the biblical narrative, Jacob is worried about where he's going to be buried, the exact plot that he will be buried in, everything that he tells his sons at the point of death has to do with territory and plots of land. And then you start understanding why the Quran comes in and speaking to the people of the Bible, whether Christians or Jews, and issues these correctives by saying, Were you present? Meaning that this narrative is either irrelevant or entirely wrong. But the Qur'an doesn't bother telling us that what the Qur'an does is it tells us what matters. That what the, the narrative in the Bible is not what it's about. It is hot, it is not easy or not possible actually to understand the quranic passion about past prophets and why often the quran tells us that your past is the past of abraham isaac isma'il etc etc because in the bible The path of the past prophets is not about monotheism. It's about a lot of complicated historical claims, most of which can never be verified because it's too old. That helps you situate much of what the Quran says about past prophets. I'm gonna discuss one other thing that we find in the Quran if you go to verse 146 so you know this الذين الكتاب يعرفونه كما يعرفون in وان منهم لا al الحق وهم يعلمون so again in 146 Allah repeats this constant issue that muslims often read and ignore and that is the, 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 the gripe that the Quran has with the people of the book that they know something or that they know things that they conceal and things that they know well and, and that they in fact yaktubun al conceal the truth. Okay, so I give you an example of that when the Bible talks about um, the Messiah being or the next messenger being from the brother of uh, the side of Isaac's brother rather than Isaac's descendants. But here is one of the most um one of the the, the things that at the heart of the claim so in John 14 chapter 14 oh, uh, chapter what is it? yeah chapter 14 um verse 15. so this is Jesus spe- speaking so Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commands and I will ask the Father and He, the Father, will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of Truth, the world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know him, for he lives with me. Sorry, sorry. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. And on that day, You will realize that I am in my father, and you are in me, and I am in you. So this sounds fairly like a non-issue, except when you notice says, I will ask the father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. Now, this is normally translated from the Greek as another advocate or like in the King James Bible, it's translated a comforter. I will give you a comforter who, or not I will give you, but the Father will give you, and a comforter, who will be with you forever. And the Greek word that was translated as either comforter or advocate that the Father will send after Jesus to be with them forever. Uh, the Greek word is parakletos, and in Arabic is faraklit. parakletos. Now, in different versions, Paracletos, in different uh, uh, manuscripts, what you find is paracletos instead of paracletos. The difference is very significant because the New Testament was spoken in Aramaic. Eventually from Hebrew to Greek. In Aramaic, the word is mauhamana. Mauhamana means the much praised. And pericletos also means the much praised. Much praised. What is Muhammad? The much praised. But if it is rendered paracletos instead of perikletos then it becomes a comforter or an advocate. So till now different manuscripts of the New Testament still I mean still will either have Earlier one says Perikletos, later one say Parakletos, um, in Arabic all of them say Faraklit, which is a, a corruption of the of the Greek. But if you go back to the Aramaic, it's Ma'hamana, which is the the priest and Muhammad. Um, so it is. This is the type of background that the quran is talking about so when the quran is telling them that in you know the book and you know that the book said of course we we're not even counting the gospel of barnabas which was rejected by the church in the fifth century a.d um but the gospel of barnabas of course, the different versions of Gospel of Pines, but the earlier versions are even more explicit about the Paraclete, or the Paracletos, or the Mahamana, the, the Muhammad that Jesus says is going to come later and be with you forever. So this is all part of the polemics between the the new message that comes and tells the Christians you know what I'm talking about and tells the Israelites as well you know what I'm talking about when you when in the the, the Torah the prediction that the Messiah is going to be from the line of Isaac's brother and in the New Testament in John the discourse on the theharaoclete and Jesus saying that the Phoclete will come after me, or the Percletos or the mahamana uh and so on and there is so much more i mean as I said y- you can spend a, a a although i mean for reasons that completely escape me um. You, can, you know, Muslims can easily have, you have seminars where they, they teach, do comparative courses between the Bible and the Quran. Uh, you know, the only comparative courses that are ever offered are by non-Muslims. And if, if you've ever been exposed to these courses, you're shocked at how these courses manage to ignore all the material differences between the books. It's as if these people have ideological blinders. But Muslims themselves, if they if they really took what their, took their faith and their religion and their tradition seriously, they could learn the languages. I mean, it's it's not impossible to learn Aramaic. It's not difficult to learn Hebrew. Um, It's not impossible to learn Latin and he could offer courses on the differences between the Bible and the Quran, and it would go a very long way, because Muslims would understand what is so unique about the, I mean, when I, uh, you know, these these uh, this fad of those people who think they're very smart, and they call themselves ex-Muslims, and they go on the net and, you know, advertise themselves, oh, you know, every day there are hundreds of people leaving Islam, And then when you look at what they're saying, and one of the most common themes is, oh, all these books say the same thing, the Quran and the Bible. There's no difference. If you read one, you've read all of them. That absolutely tells me that these morons haven't read anything. Either they haven't read the Bible or they haven't read the Quran or probably they haven't read either. Um, But can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine when a a Muslim would be on solid foundation in understanding that there is a huge qualitative difference between the Quran, which is a book of morality, book of belief and morality, and the Bible, which is a far more complicated phenomenon. One, you know, one person cannot possibly live long enough to do everything. But I hope that some, some, somewhere, someone will hear this and um, will be motivated because this is the only way that we are going to emerge from being a defeated, colonized, broken people. Um, The only reason we are defeated, colonized, and broken is because we have a huge knowledge deficit, is because we abandoned proper education about our history, our system of thought, our intellectual legacy to others, and we've busied ourselves with studying everything but, and we've left the study of Islam to hobbyists, to medical doctors or engineers or computer scientists that basically do it as a hobby. And um, um, nothing advances that way. I mean, nothing can get ahead in that fashion what time is it okay I'm gonna just go a little bit because I have to teach class tomorrow and I'm not feeling too well but so I'm going to just go a little bit uh, with the first um, um, now we're going to go back and we're going to start talking about Surah al-Baqarah more systematically, aside from the historical context. So, we take the very opening, the very first ayah in Surah al-Baqarah. After Alif Lam which we, we've talked about, of course, the these letters. Um, but, ذلك الكتاب لا رأيب فيه هدن للمتقين or ذلك الكتاب لا رأيب فيه هدن للمتقين So, the very opening of Surah Al-Baqarah directs you to this book. and alerts the gaze of the audience of this book to paying a careful attention to the discourse of this book and describes itself as... A guidance but here because as I will show you, inshallah because it, it, it is a very particular narrative a narrative about a covenant a narrative about laws a narrative about the place of morality it could have said as it says elsewhere that this book is a guidance for entire humanity, but which the Quran does say that here in Surah Al-Baqarah it wants a different attitude, and that is guidance to those already who are and and we'll we'll fill in the the blank in a second. In fact, as Shirazi once put it, commenting on this, that the opening of Surah Al-Baqarah alerts us to something that warrants pause because Shirazi puts it, إِذَا لَتَنَوَلَهُ الْبَدَنِ الَّذِي لَيْسَ بِنَقِي لا يزيده إلا شرة ووبالة Wasakama, ونكالا. that by adding, alerting you by this word المتقين that this message that you have in Surah Al-Baqarah is for those who have a particular conscientious moral attitude already, that they are not, um, that they do not take for granted their place with God and their fulfillment of the covenant of God. So in other words, Muttaqin meanings those who are in already in a state of alertness, already in a state of self-reflection, already in a state of uh, introspective, um, introspective criticism of the self. A taqwa is when you are already questioned, constantly question yourself whether you are on the right path, whether you are doing the right thing. So what Shirazi was saying that because the Quranic message, Shirazi talks about the Quran in general, but I would like to... to, to bring it to Surah al-Baqarah in particular, that if you are an ill human being, if your heart is ill, if your intellect is ill, put differently, if you have no taqwa, if you're full of hubris, if you're the type that is full of... Uh, self um, uh, you, um, you you celebrate the self you always assume that uh, you're okay you're fine you're it, which is exactly the type of problems that we'll see where that surah al-baqarah sets out and the type of pitfalls that people who mishandled the law would fall in that the quranic revelation if you're already ill will only and this is this is earth shattering if you think about it that it will only increase you in evil it will only make you worse in the same way in my opinion that when you give a law to A dogmatic intellect, and you give law to an authoritarian despotic personality, it only makes things worse. But if the self is aware of the ailments of hypocrisy, of the ailments of egoism, of the ailments of the, all the ailments that Surah al-Baqarah warns you about, then the law will function and will play a very different role. And it is important to remember this because we'll keep coming back to it, Inshallah. And right away in the second ayah, bil ghaib, wa wa Okay, so we all understand that persevere with prayer. And time and time again, the Quran tells you, you are not going to break the despotism of the self and the tyranny of the self, unless you are able to part with material things. If your relationship to material things is one where you covet material things, and you hold on to material things, we're not going to go anywhere. But, you bil We are belief in the unseen. Well,
0: you
1: know, we immediately our mind goes to belief in the hereafter, belief in the day of uh, accountability. That you believe in angels, okay? That you believe in um, in jinn, okay? Fine. The funny thing is that I've met. <laughs> Even among those who call themselves uh, atheist Muslims, I mean, I don't understand how you could be an atheist and a Muslim. But anyway, um, I, I've met people. <laughs> the irony is that they 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 actually believe in jinn, meaning they believe they're scared of the paranormal. So you come and tell them, and I I, I love to tease people that way. You know, idiots like that. So no, I'll come and tell them. You know, I'll 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 teach you some magic where you know this one, that will happen. I'll tell you a formula that I learned from Al-Khatam Suleimani. This is a book of black magic. And, you know, just repeat it in a mirror. And, you know, just no problem. And they're, they're always freaked out because they know. In their heart, they know. But at the same time, oh, I don't believe in God. Or I not believe in angels. Well, I mean, if you believe in the unseen, you're scared of the unseen. And you know that the unseen can come and bite you in the butt. Because it can, and can come and turn your life into a living hell. Um, you've already, you've already admitted the, the essential premise upon which we disagree—that there is things beyond the material. Well, anyway, um, you know, none of them, not once, has someone actually tested me and said, "Okay, go ahead and recite the." You know the formula from Suleimani or something, and 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 bring the dark forces upon me. Um, I don't know what I'll do if if, if, if if someone challenges me that way. I mean, it's haram to actually go ahead with it, but you know, I'm I'm tempted to 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 do the haram this one time just to to bring a curse upon one of these people. Um, anyway. um But how about, okay, so you don't believe, you believe in, in the hereafter, you believe in the final day and so on, but we are not accustomed to thinking about that part of the biggest challenge and the most moral, morally worthy challenge is to believe in what you have not seen meaning the Prophets of God including the Prophet Muhammad aleyh, and what I mean by this is that there is a genre of ahadith that modern Muslims normally are not exposed to at all and <speaking in Hebrew> that the best of you in faith are those who Believe in me without having ever met me. With the Prophet ﷺ saying. Or um, where the Prophet ﷺ says to the companions, there will come a day of people who will be a'zamu ajra. There will be people that will be of who will earn greater favor than you. And they say, who are these people? And the Prophet says, those who will believe in me without having ever met me. We Muslims in the modern age are always raised to think of, you know, it's all in in, in the good old days. But the fact that you are born in this moment and you rise to the challenge of believing in the Prophet ﷺ, and even more than that, in, in and this is something else, inshallah, I'll talk about some other time, falling in love with the Prophet ﷺ, and you've never met the Prophet ﷺ, puts you in a status that is truly special with Allah. You know, I don't want to get into the, the whole thing as whether you're better than the companions or what. But the point is, is that as a Muslim, to constantly look backwards for the good old days, the golden age, people who constantly look backwards will always fall on their face. You, as a Muslim, you have to be forward-looking. You as a Muslim must learn from the past, become empowered by the past, so that the past becomes like a wind that pushes you forward. But your gaze must always be before you, empowered by the morality that the Quran teaches you to confront the the challenges that are before you at your moment and into the future. If you are constantly backwards looking and constantly telling stories about the past, every time someone tells you, teach me something, and all you can do is tell them a story about something that happened 1,400 years ago, you will fall on your face. And that's why we as Muslims keep falling on our face. Because it's a cop-out. Repeating history and as if it's an answer to everything, is intellectually cowardly. Because it, 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 it lets you off the hook when it comes to actually having to take account of the same difficulties and challenges as we will see that Surat al-Baqarah teaches you how to take account of in its historical moment. So if you learn the tools that Surat al-Baqarah endows you with, you will be able to be forward-looking. Surat al-Baqarah, again, as we will see inshallah, gives you tools, not just laws, but tools, mechanisms for rising to the occasion of the moral challenges that would confront you as bearers of God's trust. As Surah al-Baqarah says, don't forget, Surat al-Baqarah is the surah that tells us that you were the best nation given to people. Why? Because you bear witness and the Prophet will bear witness upon you, but you bear witness upon people. How can you bear witness upon a people if you're constantly looking in the, into the past? Allah didn't ask us to bear witness upon whether the, the, the companions were this or that, or whether these people who lived 1400 years. Allah asked us to be bearers of the trust in the moment we live in and that's that sets us up inshallah to unpacking the many jewels and the 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 diamonds of surah al bukhara inshallah let's stop here um and inshallah, will continue on Saturday. Okay. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Uh, Grace, come do the honors.
0: Bismillah ar-Rahman ar Again, I always feel like I'm a broken record. Thank you so much. Um, there seriously are just not sufficient words. Um, but I I feel like um, we've covered so much ground in Surah Baqarah, and it, it's Truly, a message of individual empowerment, because if you, you know, are told by God that honestly it really doesn't matter whether you are of a particular personhood, whether you're Jewish or anything, that the door is open to you based on your own action and your own commitment to justice. Um, that what else do you need? It's not even like you know you you're completely empowered. And what you just finished telling us right now about bearing witness in our time in our age you know and how we are going to have the tools i mean it's ultimately it's just such an empowering message and i you know like i was saying to our son Mito, who's 16 and you know obviously i not not really at a stage where he's all that interested in religion and all of that i was telling him that you know if you um if you knew what we're learning um if people knew what we were learning they would be not only proud to be muslim but people who are not muslim who are hearing this like everyone would want to be muslim because it's such a beautiful rich you know elevating inspiring message and i was saying to to someone at the break that the further we get into these halakhas, the more upset i get when i'm on social media, and I see people like asking questions. You know, it's like they're on Facebook and they're like, so what does the Quran have to say about X? As if they're gonna get an answer where it's just like a one-liner or a two-liner or even a paragraph, as if it's going to explain something that will give them some, you know, enlightenment and transformation. And you know, here we are now, we are deep into our 68th surah, And like, how can, you know, are just no words it's frustrating because everything is here and you feel like the more you learn the more you feel like Muslims have just failed in every single way and it's it's sad because they don't know this exists. You know they feel like they have to ask their friends on Facebook because where else do you go? So it's a it's a bittersweet message. It's 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 so empowering so exciting so inspiring. Um, and yet what happened? Muslims lost it. So I I hope, inshallah, inshallah, that this message will spread, that people will, you know, that God, and I do believe God sends people when they're ready to hear it, ready to take things seriously, you know, that they're searching, um, you know, like our friend who I, you know, read in the beginning, um, and that they'll find this richness here, and that inshallah, maybe, you know, Muslims will have hope for, for, the future through this tafsir, inshallah. So thank you so much, and um, alhamdulillah, Looking forward to um, continuation on Saturday, inshallah. So everybody have a wonderful rest of the week, and uh, if you guys have collection uh, questions, just start collecting them because we'll eventually get there. It's a, you know we're covering a lot of ground, um, but you know we'll, we'll figure out how, the best way to handle the, the Q and A because there's a lot. Thank you. Oh, yeah, and they, you can, if you have questions and you want to send them forward, you can email um, info at isuli.org. You can email me, grace at isuli.org, Ramin, rameen at isuli.org. So, um, yeah, anyway, thank you so much for being here, and inshallah, we'll see you soon. as alaikum.